Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Grace is on the Case. My name is Gracelyn Keller, and today we are going to talk about not just one case, but a couple of different cases. Cases that are all connected by one woman. No, this woman is not a killer. This woman is known as the mother of modern forensic science. And today you're going to hear about how she changed the way we investigate violent crime forever. Back during a time when women were not even allowed to become investigators, or really be educated for that matter. I'll also be sitting down with Bruce Goldfarb, the author of a biography, to get more insight on this woman's life and accomplishments. This is the story of Frances Glessner Lee. So like I said, Frances Glessner Lee rose to become extremely respected in both the forensic science and criminal investigation fields, despite being the exact opposite of the kind of person that was accepted as an investigator or scientist in her time, which was the early to mid 20th century. She even taught classes and seminars at Harvard on the subject before women were even admitted into that institution. So you go, girl. But to understand how this unlikely success story came to be, I need to take you back to before Frances was a respected, well-known scientist and investigator, back to when she was just a young socialite living in Chicago. My sources for this episode include Bruce Goldfarb's book, 18 Tiny Deaths, as well as Bruce Goldfarb himself, the Wikipedia page about Glessner Lee, Blewett Harrison Lee, the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death, an NPR article on Glessner Lee, and a New York Times article about Glessner Lee and her models. You can find the link to all of these sources on the show's website, gracesonthecasepodcast.com. So Frances was born on March 25, 1878, to an elite family in Chicago, Illinois. Her father, John Jacob Glessner, became wealthy working for International Harvest Steer, which is a manufacturing company. Her and her brother grew up in Chicago, and they were educated at home, actually, which was kind of the norm for socialites and wealthy children at the time. As a young woman, Frances was intrigued by the Sherlock Holmes series, which is often chalked up to her perfectionist nature. Anyone who's read a Sherlock Holmes mystery knows that most of them are solved in the details, and Frances loved diving into those details to try and solve the case before the answer was given in the book. In 1898, Frances married Blewett Harrison Lee, an attorney and professor of law at Northwestern University and the University of Chicago, who also helped found the Harvard Law Review. And the marriage actually ended in divorce in 1914, which was anything besides customary. But as we know, Frances is not a customary person. After this divorce, Frances began a career in legal medicine. But it's noted for many years that Frances spent a lot of time wishing that she could become a forensic investigator, which that field was kind of just in its infancy at the time, and it was locked shut by men, specifically who were in the police force at the time. Because this field was dominated by men, and the time period was also heavily influenced by female discrimination in most careers, Frances was stuck for a good amount of time where she was but she kept many friends who worked in the field and spent a lot of time with them, asking questions, observing their work, keeping them close. Then in the early 1930s, Frances inherited control of her father's fortune from International Harvest Steer, which she used to fund her interest in the study of violent crime and unexplained death. 
She used a large part of her inheritance to actually establish a legal medicine department under the medical school at Harvard, as well as fund other projects related to her eventual career in forensic science. So because Frances had a lot of connections within the forensic science community and at these very esteemed institutions such as Harvard, I mean, her brother graduated from there, her husband, while he didn't graduate from Harvard, was part of the founding members of the Harvard Law Review, and she just had a lot of other colleagues in these areas. She was actually able to kind of get around some of that discrimination at the time. Now, I'm sure she experienced her fair share of discrimination, as all females did at the time, especially those trying to break that glass ceiling. But she was able to use her charisma and her connections, which she is noted to be a very, very charismatic person. She was able to use that to kind of shimmy around some of those um, disbeliefs that women could not do science or do anything related to those fields and kind of carve herself a little path and a little niche into this community, which I think is so, so cool. And it's actually said that much of Frances's inspiration and interest into the investigation of violent crime came from one of her brother's classmates at Harvard, whose name was George Burgess McGrath. He was a medical student at the time. McGrath actually went on to become the chief medical examiner in the city of Boston, and together they lobbied to have coroners replaced with medical professionals, which was an issue that was going on prior to their successful lobbying. Um, people who were coroners were not actually medical professionals, which I think is just crazy because to perform autopsies and to find those forensic clues about death and the cause of death, I feel like you need to have some sort of medical knowledge. So the fact that they were not originally using medical professionals to be coroners is crazy to me, but they successfully lobbied together to get this change and actually started this movement in Boston that spread then throughout the whole country. The two actually remained very close friends and McGrath unfortunately passed away in 1938. After McGrath's passing, Frances began a new project which would actually become the reason behind her title, The Mother of Modern Forensic Science. She began creating these little dioramas. They were very detailed and crafted, complete with furniture, working doors and windows, literally everything you would find in a normal house, but built in dollhouse size. Now I'm sure everyone has had to create some sort of like diorama or model at one point for school or some sort of show and tell activity I know. I can think of multiple times that I had to take the shoe box and make a little thing about a book. You know what I'm talking about. But Francis's dioramas were unique. They were unique because they depicted death. At the turn of the century, a common hobby among wealthy women was model making. And Francis took her skills that she learned from making dollhouses as a socialite and converted them into making small scale models of crime scenes which she then wanted investigators to use to be educated on evidence identification and collection without the potential disruption, which was a huge problem back in this time period. There was a lot of violent crimes going unsolved. Even after the coroners were replaced with medical professionals, there was still a lot of crime that was going unsolved because the collection and identification of potential medical evidence or even just forensic evidence in general. I mean, they didn't have DNA at all at this point, but any other kinds of evidence, you know, that could be helpful to be able to track down a killer just wasn't being cataloged correctly because people didn't have the methods that we use now. And so Frances wanted to change this. She saw all of these victims that were not getting justice and were not catching these dangerous people who were out there possibly 
able to kill again. And so she wanted to take her skills and her love for forensic science, combine them and shove her way into this field. She was known as being very belligerent in wanting to be a part of this, which I have so much respect for. I mean, when you want to do something and you put that much time and that much work and you take all those naysayers and all of those people that are telling you because of where you come from, your background, what you look like, you are not able to do something and you do it anyway, that is just absolutely amazing. And she is a total, total inspiration and example of just that. So while she was making these dioramas and doing all of this great stuff, she actually visited real crime scenes and autopsies so she would ensure accuracy. I mean, these things are absolutely crazy. She focused her dioramas on actual cases that were tricky to solve, such as the issue of trying to make the distinction between suicide and a possible murder or foul play, or even domestic violence cases. And a majority of the cases she studies and models that she built featured female victims. Frances completed her first one in 1946 and donated it to Harvard's legal medicine department, which she helped found. Now, I'm not sure you all understand like the actual detail that this woman put into this. Each of these dioramas are so meticulously crafted, it's literally insane. I'll post some pictures of them on my show Instagram, Grace is on the Case podcast, so you can see just how crazy detailed these things are. I've been looking at pictures of them in my research for this episode, and I cannot believe, like, these things must have took thousands of hours to make. She created them in a one inch to one foot ratio, so like one inch in the diorama equals one foot in real life, and she like measured everything to make sure it was perfect. She used case files, and then obviously she went to the autopsy, she visited these crime scenes to make sure that these dioramas of these tough crimes were accurate, which is just, the thought behind it is just incredible. And she went to extreme lengths to recreate these scenes perfectly, like I said, but like she bought out-of-date clothing to actually take and cut up and use for the fabric to make sure that the fabric was accurate in like the time period of when the crime took place. She would create these tiny little calendars that would be on the month in which the crime took place as if, you know, you were in someone's house and this tragedy happened and everything was the same as what it was left like when this crime took place. Like this detail in the it's just insane. Like, I am so in awe of her passion and her meticulousness and just her ability to create these incredible things that have been so instrumental in the education of our investigators and things like that. It's absolutely incredible. So all in all, Francis studied 20 cases and created 20 dioramas in total, and each one actually costed between $3,000 and $4,500 to make due to this innate sense of detail, but of course she had this fortune now that she had inherited. Um, I mean, obviously being a divorced person in that time, she probably struggled for a little bit to keep on her feet and have finances and the ability to do things that she wanted to do. And now this fortune has allowed her to do everything that she's dreamed of. The goal of the models was to help student investigators practice evidence collection and develop their attention to detail during the initial investigation of a crime scene, which I kind of mentioned earlier. But since each diorama was meticulously crafted to resemble the real crime scene, students could gauge their talent at investigating tough crimes before ever even going out into the field, which is really, really great and just kind of a bonus because when you take a student investigator out into the field, 
there's always the potential for disruption of evidence. And so to have these students learn in a model in a controlled setting where they can practice and hone their skills without the potential issue of having a disruption or some sort of evidence being, I don't want to say tampered with, but like ruined because they just, the student doesn't know where this person who's not fully up on the tactics needed to investigate a crime scene yet, this is huge. This can be a great way for students to practice and there's 20 in total, so there's a lot of different ways that they can practice as well. Francis's philosophy was that the purpose of forensic science was to quote, convict the guilty, clear the innocent, and find the truth in a nutshell, end quote, which I absolutely love. And thus her dioramas were dubbed the nutshell studies of unexplained death. Throughout the 1940s and 50s, Frances actually began hosting conferences where she used the nutshell studies to teach investigators how to better identify and catalog evidence at crime scenes. These conferences were attended by detectives, investigators, and other law enforcement professionals from all over the country. And they're a huge reason why Frances is so widely known and respected in the forensic science community to this day. In 1943, Frances was named captain for the New Hampshire State Police for her work and contributions. This designation actually made her the first woman to join the National Association of Police Chiefs as well, which you go girl again, breaking all the glass ceilings. <laughs> so her models were used for educational purposes in the Harvard Legal Medicine Department until 1966. Then they were actually donated to the Maryland Medical Examiner's Office. The models are actually still used in the education of investigators today, and seminars much like the ones Frances held herself are also hosted using them. They have also been displayed at the Smithsonian Museums in Washington, D.C., and have inspired a number of fiction and nonfiction works, including an episode of CSI, an episode of NCIS, the fictional book The Dollhouse Murders, and two documentaries about both Francis's life and the use of the dioramas in the education of law enforcement in Maryland, and so many more works just like Bruce's book and other books, I'm sure, as well. So Frances passed away on January 27, 1962, at 83 years old, but her legacy and trailblazing in the field of forensic science and criminal investigation survives to this day. Many of her investigative techniques are still in practice, and like I said earlier, the nutshell studies are still used as well. This woman was an absolute trailblazer and broke more than one glass ceiling. Her story stands testament to the fact that there is no cookie cutter image for what an investigator or scientist should look like or any professional in any career for that matter. Her intelligence, passion, and drive to have her voice and ideas heard, accepted, and respected is a lesson that prevails to this day. And without her, the way we investigate and catch violent criminals may look very, very different. So now to talk a little bit more about Francis's life, accomplishments, and legacy, I'm sitting down with Bruce Goldfarb, the author of 18 Tiny Deaths, The Untold Story of Francis Glessner Lee and the Invention of Modern Forensics. Goldfarb also oversees the home of the nutshell studies at the Chief Medical Examiner's Office in Baltimore, Maryland. Bruce, welcome to the show, and thank you so, so much for joining me today. Uh, nice to talk with you, Grace. Yeah, so we're just going to jump right in here. So your book, 18 Tiny Deaths, profiles Frances Glessner Lee and her huge contributions to modern forensic science in the World War II era. And at the time, women were highly discouraged from 
and often barred from even um, any kind of schooling or profession in the science or medical fields. And so that being said, how did Glessner get started on this path to changing forensic science? Well, she got into it through the, the, the force of her personality. Um, she was uh, quite a determined woman, and she was introduced to the field through her friend, George Burgess McGrath, who is the medical examiner for the Boston area. You're, you're right that both the academic side and the law enforcement side were pretty much male-dominated at the time. And so how do you think that she was able to become such a trailblazer despite the heavy female discrimination? She was just really a, uh, an extraordinary person. She was ex very, very bright, very well read. She had a, uh, a command of the facts. Um, it doesn't help to be immensely wealthy as well. Um, certainly being rich and um, being generous with your money can open doors and get people to have meetings with you. And so um, she was able to do that, but then you need to be able to follow through with the facts and have a command of the subject, which she also did. And so it was the combination of her, her determination, her, her personality, and the social skills that she had been raised with, uh, combined with the wealth to get people to pay attention to her, I think. Yeah, for sure. Kind of staying on that same vein, why forensic science and why study such, I guess for lack of a better word, like morbid field as, as like violent crime and unexplained death? I mean, as a socialite, I'm sure she grew up very sheltered or kind of proper, I guess. So what do you think drew her to such kind of a opposite career? She had a real, I think, a very deep sense of justice. And not just in that people were getting away with murder, but that there were people who were, and there still are to this day, people who are charged and convicted of crimes that they did not commit. So it was very important to her, just as a sense of right and wrong, to convict the guilty and clear the innocent. And yet it's true that she was raised in the aesthetics of the time and where, you know, uh, she was learned how to sew and knit and, and uh, crochet, and uh, the family was immersed in the decorative arts and these sorts of things. But I, I think when she reached adulthood and hearing about uh, George McGrath's work, and he was a medical examiner on some high-profile cases like the Sacco and Venditti case and the, the 1919 Boston molasses disaster, um, there were just subjects of much more significance than what women talked about at the time, these social clubs and, you know, how many times can you talk about etchings and decorative arts and <laughs> uh, sorts of things. So, you know, I think it was things that were more uh, uh, weighty and more serious and life and death and justice and, and uh, you know, it just, it was spellbinding. Yeah, that's definitely such a great point. Um, so kind of going along with that, Glessner developed the nutshell studies of unexplained death, um, we talk about that in your book, as a way to train law enforcement in uh, different methods of investigating violent crimes. And many of these teachings and methods are actually still used to this day, which is really cool. Um, can you kind of explain for listeners that maybe don't know what the nutshell studies are and then also why they have been so impactful to this day? The, the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death are a collection of 18 dioramas. They're basically dollhouses. Uh, they look very much like dollhouses, and they're in this, a standard dollhouse scale of one inch to one foot. Uh, and um, they depict 
um, death scenes, all of them. And it's a, about as close as you can get to a real crime scene. There, it's a three-dimensional model, very detailed. And uh, they are used as practice to observe a crime scene. They are an instrumental part of a seminar that she, she being Francis Glessner Lee, established in 1945 to train police officers. Um, and uh, this week-long seminar uh, was very intensive, and it teaches them about blood force injuries and sharp force injuries and drownings and poisonings and all these things. But really, the, the, a very, very critical piece of it is the, the scene itself, because the police are the first responders. And it's very important that, that, that police recognize things that may be significant in the way of evidence so that it can be collected and preserved and processed and interpreted correctly and all these things. So that's what the nutshells did. And, you know, the interesting thing is, for one thing, they, they are still used today. This, this homicide seminar that she began in 1945 mm -hmm. is, is still held today. It's now called the Francis Klesner Lee Seminar on Homicide Investigations and is run the same exact way using the nutshells and everything else. And, and although, you know, we're in the 21st century now, um, the, the facts of violent death uh, really have changed very little. Uh, there's still a very short list of ways uh, to kill somebody or kill yourself. There's bullets and ropes and poisons and, uh, and so on. So, uh, you know, those things are eternal. And for all the gee whiz technology that is at the disposal of uh, forensic investigators today, gas chromatography, uh, you know, alternative light sources and sophisticated uh, equipment, um, it still comes down to the power observation. There's no substitute for having a sharp mind and, and, uh, and noticing things. And, and that is something um, that is that that is eternal, and and so you know, uh, crimes today are solved by brain work, not by technology, and it's still true today. Right. Do you have anything else that you want to add about your book or Glessner or anything else? If you read about her, there's a lot of myths about her. Um, if you read online, that was part of the reason why I did the book was that there's a lot of misinformation, uh, such as that she was the model for Jessica Fletcher uh, in uh, Murder, She Wrote, um, which is untrue. Uh, the model was uh, uh, Miss Marple, um, and that she was an honorary captain, which is sort of true. Um, she was actually commissioned as a captain in New Hampshire State Police in 1943 when she was uh, 66 years old. And, and she was given other honorary uh, designations, but she was, in fact, a real captain in New Hampshire State Police. She's also responsible for, you know, the first procedural forensic science uh, drama, the movie, uh, 1950s Mystery Street uh, with Ricardo Mont uh, Montalban. And, uh, you know, it's the first uh, rip from the headlines uh, uh, drama that featured a medical examiner solving a case and clearing the innocent and convicting the guilty. Did you enjoy the book? I did. Yeah, it was quite um, just like very interesting. I had no idea that that was like the root of the techniques and like just the start of the forensic science world that we know today. And especially that like a woman had such a big hand in it too. That was one of the reasons I wanted to cover this book and like talk about it because I feel like stories like that are so well received right now. She really was, uh, you know, an important person who was overlooked from the history books, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate, but you know, she was a, one of these, you know, unsung heroes that I, I hope that, you know, she's beginning to get her due and recognition for what she 
what she accomplished. Yeah, I was shocked that I had never heard of her before now because I'm obviously I have a true crime podcast. I'm pretty interested in that whole area of stuff. And so the fact that I hadn't heard of her, I was like, how do I not know about this? And, and those who do know of her, primarily know of her of as a an eccentric, older, rich woman who made creepy dollhouses, and that's it. She's into the nutshell studies. But really, you know, she she was much more of a an agent of change, and was really responsible for uh, the growth of uh, the medical examiner system and uh, improving the death investigation in the country. So it's really so much more than just the nutshell studies. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to me and discuss this amazing woman. Um, I'm sure that everyone will love hearing about her story and all the things that she contributed to our modern scientific field. So thanks so much for being here today. I'm glad to do it, Grace. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. So that's all for this episode. Thank you so much, Bruce Goldfarb, for sitting down with me. If you're interested in reading more about Frances Glessner Lee's life and career, Check out Bruce's book, 18 Tiny Deaths. And if you liked this podcast, please be sure to rate it five stars on whatever platform you're listening on. Leave a review if you feel like it too. It helps so, so much with getting the show out there and having more listeners discover it. So thanks so much for listening. I'm Grace Lynn Keller, and this has been Grace is on the Case. Mm-hmm.